This is a, maybe the high point of Zechariah. This is a beautiful passage, and I've just prayed it, and we, again, we've talked about this idea of, of understanding the grace and the mercy of God. There are a few passages in Scripture that more explicitly talk about God's amazing grace towards sinful people. So I, I do hope that you're encouraged this morning as you, as you listen, as you read along, as the Holy Spirit guides us together towards our Savior Jesus, because he is at the center of this, this text. I've titled this morning's message, A Renewed People, Freedom from Guilt and Shame. Before we read the text, let me ask you this question. Anybody here interested in running for public office, like President of the United States? We just had an election year. I think about this every time there's a, a major election season. I think about the level of scrutiny that candidates have to endure when they're running for public office. Could you imagine people digging into your life, especially in this age of social media and 24-hour news coverage, just digging into your life, every personal detail gone through with a fine-tooth comb and then turned over to the world for everybody to see. I don't think I would ever run for office just for that reason alone. There's noble reasons to run for office, but that, that element of it, to me, is like, man, that, that, just, that just doesn't make it worthwhile, right? Think about this. If you were to have that kind of scrutiny, do you think they could dig up anything on you? It's a scary thought if you think about it, right? Do you think they could dig up anything on you? Here's a scarier thought. What if you were under that kind of scrutiny, and what if your investigators had access to more than just your tweets, your texts, your emails, and your phone records? What if they had even more insight into your life? What if they could find things about your past, even if people who you know well were not willing to come forward and expose you? They'd find it anyway. What if it wasn't just your behavior that was exposed? What if it was your thoughts? What if you were to learn that behind every closed door you've ever hid behind, every secret activity you've ever participated in, every intent of your heart, there was an observer present who saw all of it? And what if you knew that that observer was willing to play it back like a feature-length film for everybody to watch? That's not just a scary thought. It's a terrifying thought, right? It's terrifying. And it's terrifying because we all know that if this were to happen to us, things would come out that would be so condemning that we'd have nothing to stand on. It's terrifying because we know that if there were accusations made against us by an observer like that, those accusations would be true. And I'm well aware that even though none of us that I know of are running for office or have been, you know, 
have been uh, under that kind of scrutiny publicly. I know that a lot of us think about things like that on a regular basis. Perhaps you think about that kind of fear on a daily basis. The fear of, of being fully known, the fear of, of being exposed. Even if the observer that you're aware of is just yourself, you know things about yourself that oftentimes will cause many of us to just be crippled with guilt, crippled with, with shame. It's a crushing weight to live under that kind of burden, right? That kind of guilt and shame. And I do fear that many of us are living under that, that cloud. What is guilt? Well, the, the dictionary defines guilt as, as both a fact and a feeling. And the feeling, sometimes we might call it shame. Shame is one of those words that has uh, different kinds of definitions. But in the, in the sense that we're using it today, it's the, it's the feeling of guilt. So the fact of guilt is when you've committed a specific offense, that you are guilty, right? That's just a fact. The feeling of guilt is the way that that, that, that that lands on you, right? That that crushes you if you carry it and, it and it causes that level of shame. Either way, it's a fact, it's a feeling, it's an awful place to be. Guilty. Are you crumbling under the weight of guilt this morning? Maybe you are. Maybe you should be, right? Maybe there are things that you, you need to reckon with. Whether it's about your past, maybe something five hours ago, or maybe it's something five decades ago. What haunts you this morning? I know that's a heavy thing to consider, but it's a, it's, it's a worthy thing to consider. And I, as you consider it, I want to... I wanna, submit to you that the Bible offers both bad news for us in that regard, but ultimately good news for us. Let, let me share with you what the bad news is this morning. The bad news is that that feature film of your life that we've just been talking about, that will be played. It will be played, and you will be held accountable for every shameful thing you are guilty of. Listen to what Matthew 12 says. Jesus says there, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Every careless word. Romans 14, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That's scary. Unless it's coupled with some good news. And there is good news this morning. The good news is that there is hope for each and every one of us to be able to stand before a holy God on a day like that if we're in Christ. If we're in Christ. And that's what our passage today 
is going to point us to. So again, I hope you're there at Zechariah chapter 3. I want you to close your eyes for a minute before I read the first verse, and I want you to imagine yourself in a divine courtroom, because that's the scene that we're about to enter. And remember that as we go into this this, uh, text, that this is the fourth vision now that Zechariah has been given to share with the people of God. The fourth one. The first of the visions was a reminder to them that God is with them in their low estate, in their low places. The second of the visions was, a, was a, uh, an announcement to them that God would deal appropriately to punish their oppressors. The third of the visions was that God would yet again choose Jerusalem and that he would build it as a city without walls, that it would, it would be a city of growth, a city protected because God would be present with them. So he's giving them this sense of hope for their future, this people who have been you know, in captivity for 70 years and are discouraged right now. He's, he's giving them this sense of hope. But there may be this sense as they're hearing that God is with them and he'll protect them and he'll grow them and all these, all these good things. There may be a sense in which they might be thinking, but God, what about our guilt? Are we... Are we worthy of that kind of love from you, that kind of favor from you, God? What about this shame that we feel for the past, that, the past sins that we've committed? And so the Lord takes Zechariah into a courtroom. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Here we see the real trial of the century unfolding. All of the players are here. There's Joshua, who is the high priest in Jerusalem, and he's on trial. He's standing trial. The prosecuting attorney is none other than Satan himself. And the judge is the angel of the Lord. And as we've discussed already, the angel of the Lord is Christ. But the scene that's being set up here is serious and frightening for the people of Jerusalem to witness. As the high priest, Joshua does not stand there alone. A high priest, by the function of his office, is a representative for the entire nation, the entire people of Israel. So as they see Joshua standing trial here, they have to see themselves standing there with him. It's not just him on trial, all of them are on trial. You see, the function of the high priest was to enter into the temple, into the holy of holies, and to make the atoning sacrifice himself First for his family, and then himself, and then ultimately for the whole people of God. And the thing about the priest is he's the only one who could do that. Nobody else could do that. He alone was the mediator between God and the people. But before he could enter into the innermost parts of the temple, he had to put on clean clothing He had to have purified clothes. He had to put on a clean turban on his head. And that that turban had a sign on it that said, holy unto the Lord. He had to to have this, this holiness 
to stand before God in the temple if he could not enter into that space purified, if he could not enter in there holy, he could not make atoning sacrifices for the people. So it was so important that the priest be pure, not just for himself, but for everybody. And that's what's so scary about this scene. This man is on trial. This man is being accused of a crime. He's in trouble. And therefore, all of the people are in trouble with him. And here's the accuser, Satan, standing before the judge, ready to accuse him, ready to name his sins one by one, ready to expose him and to expose his shame before everybody. Surely this has to do with his past. Surely this has to do with the things that had led the nation into exile in the first place. They were a sinful people. They had rebelled against God. They had rejected God. I mean, all of that, all of that weight is surely on, the, on the, the, the sheet of paper in front of the accuser, ready to be revealed yet again, ready to be accused yet again. And, and what else had they done even while they were in Babylon? I mean, all of it. Could you imagine being in Joshua's shoes in that moment? Again, I've had you think about this already, but what if it were you? What would the accuser know about you? What past things about you would be ready to come out in this moment in full technicolor clarity? Here's the thing. These accusations that were about to be leveled against Joshua were not baseless accusations. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Remember, the priest is supposed to be, be clothed in pure garments. He's supposed to be clothed in, in white, clean clothes. And yet it says here he's standing there and he's filthy. And in fact, the word translated here as filthy, as dirty, the, the, the Hebrew word, uh, root of that word is, is used literally to mean human excrement. So he's standing there ready to be accused, and, and as his head hangs low, as he looks at himself, he sees himself covered. Excrement. That is shame. Right? Can you relate to that feeling? Can you relate to that awareness? This is, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is where I'm at. What would you expect to happen in a moment like that? What do you expect to happen in moments like that in your life? When you're deeply aware of your sin, you're deeply burdened by your shame, you feel the accusations coming and you know them to be true, what do you expect to happen? The evidence to convict is overwhelming. The, the guilty verdict will be handed down with a, a thunderous boom, surely a rebuke is in order. Yet this is what you need to hear this morning if you feel that burden. 
There's a rebuke coming, but it's not the rebuke you'd expect. Back in verse 2. And the Lord said, not to Joshua, the Lord said to Satan, the accuser, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not a burning stick plucked from the fire, this Joshua? In other words, you're ready to accuse him. You're ready to heap the shame on him. You're ready to condemn him to the fires of hell. And yet the Lord steps in and rebukes the accuser and plucks the stick out of the fire. The Lord, who is judge, becomes an advocate. He becomes the advocate. It's a beautiful picture here. It's the unexpected picture of mercy. But it's not enough that he just turns and rebukes the accuser. That's not the end of his action. He now acts with an unthinkable and undeserved act of mercy towards the accused. Verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I have taken your sin away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a beautiful picture of the love and mercy of God. He removes the filthy garments. He removes his shame and clothes him with sinlessness, clothes him with guiltlessness. Verse 5, and I said, this is Zechariah speaking, let them put a clean turban on his head. Here's Zechariah who's, who's seeing this happen and he, he knows that, that this priest who's been clothed now with the pure clothes, he needs that turban. He needs that sign on his head that says holy unto the Lord. He needs to be holy. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you, do you get a, a, a full sense of what's really going on here? Listen to the words of Brian Gregory. He's a commentator who, who remarks so well on these amazing verses. He says, The angel of the Lord dramatically acts out the Lord's intention to cleanse Joshua and therefore to cleanse all of the people from their soiled past. Joshua's soiled garments are taken away and they're replaced with a ceremonially clean turban and festal robes. Therefore, the replacement of these clothing items symbolizes the removal of guilt, both his and the people's, and the reinstatement of a purified priesthood. Significantly here, it is the Lord the angel of the Lord, who performs the plucking and the replacement. Joshua is not told here to do anything. 
Did you notice that? Joshua doesn't do anything. He stands there accused, guilty, and it's the Lord who becomes advocate who does everything. He removes Joshua from the fire. He purifies him. He puts on the new clothing. He graciously does it to Joshua, and he does it not just again to Joshua, but for the sake of the community. And as a result, God's relationship with his people would be restored through a renewed priesthood ministering in a soon-to-be-rebuilt temple. Impurity gone, righteousness to take its place. That's amazing. That's amazing. If you feel the burden and the weight of sin this morning, if you feel the crushing stench of shame this morning, there is hope for us. If you accuse yourself this morning, if, if, if outside voices are accusing you, there is hope this morning. We have a God who removes our guilt and shame. We have a God who plucks you out from the fire. What does he do then? After his amazing grace and mercy towards this man and this people who are undeserving, he restores them and he calls them to live in holiness. There's a renewed mission, verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. I love that word, he assured him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. I want you to notice a couple things about what's, what's happening in verses 6 and 7. The first one is this. Notice the order, because the order is so important. God doesn't say to Joshua here, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then I'll remove your filthy clothing. If you'll keep my commands perfectly, then I'll make you righteous again. Notice that, that that's already happened. That the order is the, is the opposite of that. The order is, now that I have made you righteous, now that I have shown you mercy, now that I have taken the initiative on my own and plucked you out of the fire, I saved you first. I've been merciful to you first. Therefore, now that you have been made righteous, walk in my ways. I fear we get that backwards far too often. And I fear far too many of us are, are still under that weight of sin and shame because we feel like the, the cleansing power of God will only come once we've figured out how to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and clean ourselves up, off enough to, to walk in a manner worthy of his love and his favor. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. God gives us his favor purely by his grace. Grace is undeserved favor. 
But when he does, he restores us and renews us to a place where we can now walk according to that holiness. And that's what he's instructing Joshua to do here. Keep my charge. Walk in my ways and you'll rule my house. In other words, I will restore you to the position in which you were unworthy to fulfill before my grace. I will restore your priesthood, Joshua. He restores him. And then he says something else here. He says, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. This is another picture of restoration, but I think there's there's an added element to it. If the priest's role was, again, to be the only one who could go into the temple and represent the people, who could atone for the sins of the people, he could enter into the holy of holies, the presence of God. He could do that once a year. This restored access indicates that that certainly will be renewed, that, that his ability to, to function as a priest will, will again, he'll have that access again. But I think there's also an indication here in the wording that seems to indicate that that access will be greater than it's ever been. More so than just access once a year. But he says here, access, the right of access amongst those who are standing here. And those who are standing here include angels who have access to God at all times. So you'll be renewed. You'll be able to walk in holiness again. And you'll have an access to me, God says, greater than you've ever known before. He renews his mission. And then... He gives them the most beautiful picture of all, the way in which all of this will ultimately be fulfilled. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on that stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What is the ultimate fulfillment of this beautiful picture of mercy and cleansing for the people of God. It's the arrival of the servant, the branch, the stone. All of these are messianic titles in the Old Testament. All of them point forward to the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so Zechariah is told here, there's a better priesthood. Joshua, there's a better priesthood coming. A priesthood not just once a year, not just able to offer sacrifices temporarily for the people, but a better priesthood who will come and forgive in a single day everyone's sin. And of course that points us to 
Jesus. I want to encourage you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. You can keep a finger here in Zechariah, but I want you to look and see what the New Testament says about Jesus' fulfillment as this better priest. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm starting in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And that's why he has to go in every year. Those sacrifices are they're temporary. They can only go so far. They can never fully eradicate sins. But... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What is this single sacrifice for sins that he's talking about? He's talking, of course, about the cross. And the fulfillment here of Zechariah 3, on a single day, I will forgive all of the iniquity of my people. He accomplishes that through Jesus on the cross. As Jesus becomes the perfect sacrificial lamb, the sinless offering to the Father, to bear the wrath of God for all human sin, past, present, and future, in a single day, accomplishing what the priesthood could never accomplish until he arrived. It says he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because the work was done waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I think this is a, another way that, that we can say a fulfillment here of what we see in Zechariah 3, right? This, this idea of I will restore you to walk according to my commandments, to walk according to my ways. How? Because God's law in Christ is written on our hearts and written on our minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin listen if you're feeling the weight of guilt and shame this morning this is the message you need to cling to jesus paid it all jesus took your sin and your shame and he went to a cross and he died the death that you deserve to die. He stood there like Joshua with the filth on his garments, not his filth, your filth. And he put it to death. And because he's put it to death, when we come to him by faith and believe on him to be the sacrificial offering that we need. Look again at verse 17 here in Hebrews. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He does not remember your sin. Why do you remember your sin? The Lord Jesus does not remember your sin. 
where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is finished. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In other words, he's saying that place, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go in once a year, Jesus, the true high priest, has torn that curtain down, and now you and I have a right of access unlike anything we've ever known before. We can enter into the Holy of Holies anytime. Anytime. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. There's no place for guilt and shame in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you doubt it, draw near. Draw near. Be reminded of the finality of his work on the cross and hold on to your hope without wavering because he who promised you is faithful. Then what? Then Jesus restores you. Then Jesus gives us a new mission as well. Do you remember the, the story in, in John chapter 8 of the, the woman who was caught in adultery? And the crowds bring her before Jesus and they say, Jesus, here she is. She's been caught in adultery. What are you going to do? Are we going to stone her or are you going to let her go? And they're trying to trap him there, right? They're trying to, they're trying to get, get him in a bind where he doesn't really have a, a good option here without violating something about who he claims to be as the Son of God. And so he does something that only the Son of God is wise enough to do. He turns it back to them and he says, hey, who among you is without sin? You be the first one to throw the stone. And they all, one by one, walk away. And I love what Jesus then does. He stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. There's the mercy of Christ, right? Neither do I condemn you. And then he says, from now on, go and sin no more. He restores her. He gives her this, this new uh, mission, this new ability to walk in righteousness. I do not condemn you. Go. Sin no more. Live holy. Live righteously. Again, not as a means to earn the no, neither do I condemn you statement, but as a result of that, you can go and live in holiness. Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn there. In fact, I would encourage you, because this is a long text again. Page 976. But one of the most 
beautiful pictures of gospel grace and renewal in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So this is who you were. This is, you were under the power of the accuser. And the accuser had every right to accuse you because you were living according to the passions of the flesh. You were living in sin. You were under the wrath of God. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, You've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is, a, this is just a, 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 a lived-out picture of what we see in Zechariah chapter 3. God, rich in mercy, has plucked you out of the fire. He's made you clean. You didn't do anything. You can't boast in yourself. This is grace. And then verse 10, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been restored in Christ, Christian, to be able to live a life now walking in his ways, holy before the Lord. In other words, our salvation is not a license to just continue on in sin. Our salvation is a, is, a, is, 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 a, is a freedom to live in holiness, to be to live a life that is pleasing to God, not, again, to earn his favor, but because you already have it. So let me apply this a little bit more. What guilt and shame have you been carrying? What guilt and shame have you been carrying? I know you know the bad news. I know you repeat the bad news to yourself often, maybe every day. The condemnation, the shame, the excrement. But have you found good news this morning? hopeful news this morning in this message of, of, of hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Sometimes because of our past, we think there's no future for us, that God can't use us, or simply he won't use us because it's too late. Sometimes we're so haunted by our spoiled past, but we have to remember, please remember, you have a high priest who has interceded for you who continues to intercede on your behalf. And because of his faithfulness in our place, 
we know that God can cleanse any past. Any past. No matter how soiled it is, even your past. Because God is a God who plucks burning sticks out of the fire. He washes us clean. He purifies us from any impurity so that we're immune from any indictment of the accuser. That, Christian, is your reality. That is your reality. And I want to encourage you. I I hope every Sunday, I hope every ministry of this church points us in this direction, but we have to, it seems like we have to continually come back and be reminded of it. Live in light of this reality. Live in light of this reality. How do you do that? You're going to leave this place and within minutes you're going to sin. And that's being generous, probably seconds. Nanoseconds, right? You're going to sin. You're going to sin today. You're going to sin tomorrow. You're going to sin this week. You're going to sin. What do you do then when you, you know you've got this reality of like, okay, Jesus has paid my debt. I've been cleansed. And yet I'm going to step out the door. I'm going to sin. And that accuser is going to come again. He's going to come again. And he's going to tell me, you're dirty. What do you do? You live in light of this reality. Let me encourage you with a story I heard this week. I was at a retreat all week with a bunch of other pastors, and, and, and one of the pastors was sharing with us this beautiful application of the gospel. His name is Mike Bullmore. He's a pastor up in Kenosha, and he was talking about his wife who, who was aware but not fully aware that there was, some, there was something going on. There was some kind of sin. She sensed that there was, there was sort of this something going on inside of her, but she couldn't quite put her finger on it. So he said one night... We, we get into bed, and she grabs her journal, and she just starts writing stuff down, and she's working through it, and I can see the motors are turning in her head, and she's scratching things out and writing new things. For about 45 minutes to an hour, she's just working through, trying to identify, what is this sin in my life that I, that I need to identify? And at a certain point, after again about 45 minutes to an hour, she drops her pencil, she looks at her page, and she says, Well, that's the truth of it. Whatever it was, she figured it out. Well, that's the truth of it. And then he said, and she shut the book, and she put it on the bedstand, and she said, and Christ died for it. And she went to sleep. That is application of the gospel. You will sin. You will identify that sin. You may be accused of that sin. So be it. Say, that's the truth of it. And Christ died for it. And live in peace. Confess it. It's at the cross. Live in peace. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Biggest rhetorical question in history. No one. No one. So Father, help us to believe it. Help us to live as people who stand not with filthy garments, but with clean robes and white turbans and signs on our foreheads that say, holy unto the Lord. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we understand who we are in Christ, that we would indeed walk in your ways, that we would indeed forsake sin, that we would run towards you, that we would pursue you earnestly in all that we do. Lord, make us a purified people. But Lord, even as I pray that, I know that we will fail you. So I plead, Lord, by your spirit, remind us when we do that we can say that's the truth of it and Jesus died for it. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for his ascension in which he's now seated at your right hand, standing as our advocate. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit whom you have sent to us to indwell in our own hearts to remind us of these truths. Lord, make us a people who remember them. What a blessing. No guilt, no shame. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.